Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. This week's episode, Robin is in studio with Rebecca Payton and Philippa Perry. But before we get to that, a few announcements to make. Thank you, as always, to our Patreon supporters, both old and new. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to pledge to support the show from as little as $1 a month. Or you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash shop and pick yourself something up from there. Signed uh, Robin books, book bags, art prints, all sorts of stuff. Go and check that out. And we have some live events coming up as well. March 8, International Women's Day. Uh, We'll be doing a live science shambles at Manchester University. Tickets for that are free. You can find all the links on the events pages at cosmicshambles.com. So make sure you get in early to snap up some tickets for that. We're doing that in conjunction with the university and our Cosmic Superheroes exhibition. We did Helen Chersky, Susie Gage, Ginny Smith and Sheena Cruikshank will be part of that show. And then on March 20 and April 2nd, we are doing two work in progress shows at King's Place, a new show devised by Professor Chris Lintop from Sky at Night and Steve Pretty from the Hackney Colliery Band, who's also uh, been our musical director for most of the shows at Hammersmith and uh, Space Shambles at the Royal Albert Hall. Their new show, Chris and Steve's Universe of Music, examines the, the crossover between astrophysics and jazz. They're going to be two really fun bonkers nights. Tickets are only £10.50. Go to the King's Place website or our events pages on Cosmic Shambles to get tickets for those. And also a reminder to check out uh, two of our new podcasts, Brain Yapping with Dean Burnett and Rachel England. Uh, the next episode of that has just gone out. Plus the return of Brian Cox and Robin Ince's Loungecast. They are off around the world on their big tour of Universal, and when they get a chance, they will be recording podcasts on the road from airport lounges and tour buses and backstage lounges. The first episode, uh, the return, I guess, the first returned episode, that makes no sense, but we're going with it. Uh, That's out now. Brian's eating chicken. Robin's talking about Space 1999. Go to cosmicshambles.com slash loungecast to subscribe and listen to that, or just search for... Robin and Brian's Lounge Cast, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here is this week's episode. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, Josie is still not here. Uh, she's very, very busy nowadays. And uh, so we have uh, today's guest, uh, Philippa Perry, who's been on before, a couple of times before. Uh, author, well, you were, the last time we had on, you were an author of two books. I'm now, now an author, author of, of three three, books. three. The new one, which is out, which we're going to do a proper full uh, book shambles on at some point. But the, the new one is the title... The book you wish your parents had read. And it is kind of, it's a beautiful cover in the kind of style slightly, because it, it, you, you do have a little Larkin-esque connection there in the, in the font, don't you? Probably, yeah. There's a little bit yeah. of they You're going way over my head, but yeah, probably, yeah. 
But that's uh, so that's out in, in March. And uh, our other guest is uh, Rebecca Payton, actor and playwright and my former agent many, many, many years ago. The good old days. Um, I'm going to start straight off with uh, I'm trying to read lots of novels this year and uh, I've never read an Edna O'Brien before and I just did the other day and I thought it was brilliant. Have either of you read any Edna O'Brien? No, no. Brilliant. Let's move on. So uh, why, is, why is it so good? I don't know. I, I just... It was the the two novels that I started this year with were uh, Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin, which is uh, an incredibly beautiful and and sad uh, novel, and the perfect length as well. It's just under two hundred pages. After that, I'm all always drift off. I've found every time a book gets to two hundred and thirty, I want to read another book now. Would but it help it's... if you didn't know, like if it wasn't paginated? Like if it's on, mm. on a Kindle, you never know how much you've got left. Oh, I don't like reading. I, I've Can tried I, on yeah. a Kindle. Can read. I, I'd love some advice on this, actually. I've got you both here. I'm about to go away for a while to write a book, and uh, I'm thinking I, I should get invest in something to read on. But I, I, actually seeing how far I've got, because I'm here's a confession, I'm not the greatest of readers. So it's, it's relatively difficult for me. So I actually find it inspiring to go, look, I've read a third of the book. I'm doing really well. Mm. Whereas a Kindle... Well, you do get the percentage... You know, you're you're fifty percent, you're seventy five percent through. Maybe you can even yeah. get your reading speed if you want. <gasps> now that then I could become competitive with myself. That might be interesting. I think it's difficult though because I think for uh, there. The, the the research at the moment, and of course it's very early stages, is that you do receive the information in a different and less effective way on reading it on a Kindle than if you're reading it oh, from really? a book. That the actual very process oh, really? of reading... Because I always find that if someone sends me like a proof copy of their book, which is just a you know uh, a file, and I read it off a computer, I, oh, back and the forth experience and back and forth, is, yeah. is different to you me. You haven't got the visual than... experience of the cover. I mean, I know the cover is there, but you don't see it, and it's usually in black and white. And I think there's something about the physicality of a book that is, is part of the experience of reading it. I mean... The paper might have a smell or something, and all these things trigger your memory in a way. Well, and it's, they're, that they're specific, aren't they? I've the done thing. a lot of reading off Kindle this year, and um, suddenly had a little panic about, oh God, what have I read? I'm I'm at a, I'm at a book podcast. I can't remember what I've read. I wish I brought my Kindle, but I haven't. But the because I, I I struggled years ago. I mean, back back when I was your agent, so it was 1937, mm. and um, I for the first time had an electronic diary. And uh, it was a disaster. I could not remember what was in it in my in my mind. Was it one of those Scion things that were very... Do you know what? I did have a Scion, because at the time I had a very, very techie fella, so I used to get all this, because he would get drunk and buy two at lunchtime, so I'd get one. So I had a Palm 5, because and it was a Palm 5, so it was great, and I had a little... It was very enjoyable to use, but I couldn't remember a thing, because every page looked exactly the same, whereas in my diary, something's been rubbed out, something's in pen, there's something's been spilt... And I have a very physical memory of my diary. Yeah. Otherwise, but if it's not, if it's so, I can't. I'm, I'm a disaster because everyone's like, "Will you please start using um, some computerized version of I your can. diary?" Yes. Exactly. So that every time you lose your diary, which has happened recently, I don't go around letting people down, not turning up to my own events and things like that. And it, but I can't. I wonder if it's the same thing that there is. There is fonts are slightly different. Paper is the paper quality is different. There are all of those things which you're picking up, which you're not even aware that you're picking up mm. because your brain is doing all that stuff while you're trying to read a book. I think there is a kind of psychogeography in books as well, because a lot of what mm. I read is stuff that I've bought in second-hand shops. And you, I think there's there's a unconscious or subconscious stuff going on when you, you're picking up and you, and you think, who's read this, you know, Ian Sinclair before me, or who's yeah. been, you know, the H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft or whatever. And and also the process of, and I, and I know this is a you know, hotly debated topic, but because I write on books, 
in pencil. I'm, I make oh, notes pencil, okay. sometimes yeah. on you know on top of a page if I get, especially if it's non-fiction. There's a moment where I think, oh, that's the idea that's on this page that I think I've got from this page anyway, and I'll just put a little kind of three-word note at the top. So it feels. I know, I know people go, yeah, but you know, on Kindle you can do a little note thing you can do and you can h- highlight it and stuff. But it's not the same as running the pencil across that particular line. It's not the same, and it's worse because on <laughs> Kindle you've got this highlight thing, and unless you know how to switch it off, you've got everybody else's highlights that have also read the book on your Kindle and that's a nightmare. So why have they highlighted that? And you and you get distracted and it's it does get in the way. And again that highlighting is different depending on how you do it. In pencil this is a relief um, but obviously I don't want to judge people who mark their own books but you will mark things in particular ways. I, I too, and also you know you can dog ear. I think dog earing wonderful passages in books or key passages in whatever kind of book it is it's 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 one of the most joyful things is to go back to a book that I haven't that I've now forgotten the plot of or whatever that I love, open it up, and um, there is a key passage and I'm like yes I remember, I, I remember this and I remember why and it still moves me and it reminds me of that and it's important, and you I don't know how you would I don't know how you would do that on a Kindle or similar because I don't have one but in a book it's a very simple thing I take it off the shelf. I opened. I did it because I kept saying to Robin, "What books should I have in my head?" So I've been through yeah. my bookshelves, um, looking at things, and it's been fascinating opening things up and thinking, "Which freak did this?" It was me. That's what I thought at the time. That's quite interesting because a book hopefully makes a big impact on you, and um, when you're having a conversation with somebody, you have a mutual impact. You impact each other, and what you're describing to me is that actually you impact the book as well, and so it does feel like more of a whole satisfying relationship because you can dog ear, you can mark the book, you can put it in your special place, whereas a Kindle is always where the Kindle is. It's not in a yeah. special place yes. or or you can't dog ear it, you can't make it individual. And, yeah. yeah, and it's that's not in it. its place in, in time either. In There's a book I read, I can't, I can't remember anything about it, I typed out some quotes and I, I, I've realised now I could have brought them, it would have been quite an interesting thing to do, but quotes that I typed out from books that I liked when I was like a teenager, and one of them was about the passage of friendship, about this young woman standing in a room with all her friends and realise she says, in 25 years' time, these people will be memories, some of them will be gone, I won't even remember these people. And it, at the time when I was like 17... And on the cusp of like moving away from a very close group of friends, uh, it chilled me because I'm a little bit, I'm not very good with loss. And I was like, but it has stayed with me. And I think one of the reasons it stayed with me is I typed it out, that classic thing that you actually, the act of recording it elsewhere. Mm. But if I, but the book itself, because the book itself wasn't mine. So I had to let the book go. But it is that piece of, it is a piece of, it is me at that point. And in that way, it's a conversation as well. It's a conversation between who I was and who I am now, both very dysfunctional, but in different ways. But that's a very interesting, because I, I, I just read Slaughterhouse Five again, because I've, I've written a, a piece, they're bringing out a, a 50th anniversary edition of it. Um, more than most books that I've, I've reread in the last year, I noticed how different my reaction to it was. And that's something that I love about revisiting books, or even revisiting quotes from books, is the quote, the 17-year-old you, what it translated from those words is so different, it's still, you know, authentic and all this. And I find that a really beautiful... Like, when I was rereading Slaughterhouse Five, I was thinking before, I think there was a long period of time where it was all about, not war, but there's a beautiful moment quite early on when he's talking about the process of trying to write it and he meets Mary O'Hare, who is the uh, wife of his, his best friend, who he was also in the war with Bernard, and she has a go at him. 
And she says, you'll write this book as if you were men when you were babies. You were just babies. And that was the thing that when I was younger, I really th- I took away a lot of that thinking how often we see war films and it is actually normally 50-year-old men yeah. leading. And in fact, it was kids, you know. Yeah. And now, though, it's all about the nature of time. That I, I found that the, the fact that there is this kind of block universe in Slaughterhouse Five, and one moment he's sitting there and he's about to go and do uh, a lecture to some ophthalmologists, and then suddenly he finds himself he's back in the war, and then suddenly he's he's up on you know uh, on another planet, uh, and all of these things, and that moving around that now is the thing that I find most engaging and exciting. Well, you've had an experience of a passage of time yourself now, mm. and that and that is that does change books actually because. A lot of the books I read uh, when I was growing up were, um, I think, sort of Barbara Cartland, Georgia Hare, Jane Austen, Boy Meets Girl, and the ending is always when they're happily ever after, and there isn't that sense of time. And now when I reread those sort of books, I have a very different relationship to them. I mean, I thought that, you know, my opinion of Jane Austen would be stuck forever, but it isn't. And um, I used to think she was perfection itself, which sounds a little bit like one of her phrases. But now I look at her and I think, oh, my God, you were terrified. Um, You're such a snob and um, you're all about elegance rather than reality. And I can see why Charlotte Bronte got so cross with her for having no passion. She is so rigid and between two such narrow lines. I find her quite frustrating now. But when I was... 18. I bloody loved her. I thought she was, you know, this is the world according to Austin as how the world should be. You know who you should read instead now? Edna O'Brien. All right. The, uh, <laughs> okay. and I really do, I, do, I was just going to say it was the, the one that I read was that it's sometimes called The Lonely Girl and sometimes it's called The Girl with Green Eyes because it was yeah. turned into a film called that with Peter Finch and Rita Tushingham amongst others. And it's just because it seems to have, I totally believe it. So, it. so it's a youngish woman and she's in Dublin and she's a country girl, which the previous book is called The Country Girls, which I haven't read. I know I should have probably read them in order. And it's just about her relationship with an older man. And I just got this sense that you really were, there was this incredible, you know, you know when you go, none, it doesn't feel like there's any artifice in the representation. That this is, There's another much more recent book called The Lesser Bohemians, Bohemians by Ema McBride, which again is about a relationship between a young drama student and, and a kind of older actor. I heard her speak actually at a festival. It was absolutely fascinating and uh, I loved her book. I thought it was it was brilliant. Yeah, and it was, uh, but that that's what I loved about Edna O'Brien, that, and and like with James Baldwin as well, which is that just doesn't. I I don't picture someone. I mean, I'm sure I'm wrong about this, but you know, sometimes you can see and you go, oh yeah, I can see that the author then went. <laughs> that is a very good sentence. And represent- <laughs> you know that bit where you get the sense that the pen was part of their body as they, you know, I don't yeah. know I'm saying pen, typewriter, yeah. whatever, if they, but that it feels as, as if wherever it came from was not someone who was very consciously writing a novel. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it comes from a different part of the brain, like they've let themselves go so that... It's almost like you've got a sort of rational part of the brain, you know, logical, and then you've got this other more dream part of the brain that reaches the parts that other parts can't reach, as it were. <clears throat> and when somebody writes from that sort of like, I don't know where this is going, this sort of unconscious part of the brain, if they can get into that and go with it, it helps you to process your um, hidden depths, your unconscious part. I just love that. 
when that happens because I feel like someone's telling me something I've always known but never put into words before. It's just such a beautiful experience. It's amazing how many versions of something that touch you there are. I mean, that's why... That's one of the reasons I like art. I don't know if you guys like art. Yes. <laughs> All the arts, I mean. Any any art. But it's that extraordinary experience where you don't... I watched um, Manchester by the Sea by chance a couple of nights ago and um, shockingly no one had told me uh, that I should watch it. I just think it was extraordinary. They didn't do that given the trajectory of my life, which is a lot about death and grief yeah. and things. Yeah. And, um, and I was meant to be going to bed and there was absolutely no chance. And it was ex- to, to hear things again and that's when I think when you get writing like that... Yeah. Um, and it can, you know, it can be in the form of cinema, that writing. And the writing can be yeah, in the form sure. of something on the yeah. wall. But there it is that it's so direct that it's somebody's, uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's come straight out of somebody without touching the sides. And you think of um, uh, when you're doing, when they're training at drama school, they're trying to help you use your voice so you don't do any damage and so that it's properly supported by all the muscles and the system that can be there. And when your voice, people whose voices are marvellous to listen to, their voices are coming straight out physically and great singers it's coming straight out from the center and that writing for me feels it is as if some filters are taken off and people might invent words or concepts that you know i'm sure people have no idea they're going to sit down and they in in amazement at the end they go well that's incredible i thought i was going to write this scene set in the kitchen where they decide to divorce actually what happens is something else entirely and that's partly because it's I suppose what they think of as automatic writing, that it's coming from somewhere else. And it's touching. It's phenomenally touching, I think. Well, that's what I wanted to ask, actually, which is because you... Your 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 monologue sometimes I laugh like my sister was 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 co-written. Uh, I presume Philippa, you've had an editor on 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 your book, and I've yeah. an editor on, on 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 my most recent book. And that's the bit that I think I found most frustrating about writing a book was I would do that bit, which was just it was all coming out, and then someone yeah. has to say. Uh, this doesn't really make sense. Or we, I think you need to do it like. And I was very difficult with with my editor because I was just get cross. I was cross because I wanted people to understand. Because in stand up, it's very immediate, and I can yeah. see when the audience no longer understand what's going on, and I can make some kind of fabrication to so that they do know uh, what's going on. Whereas, of course, I can't do that in a book. Once I've lost them, I can't go. Oh, hello. Fortunately, I'm sitting behind you uh, on this train, and I yeah. can tell you what I meant. And I found that very that that transition from here's something that's coming without that much interference and now the interference has to be, begin so it actually is comprehensible on the page so i wanted from both of you if you've had a oh, I, I'm, I, I am difficult to edit because um, I feel like you and I have temper tantrums about it and um, I feel like when someone takes my words and simplifies them and makes them comprehensible, they've dumbed me down. But on the other hand, I do want to be accessible, so we usually fight through and find a compromise. I think I might have over-compromised, but I did want this book to be accessible, so I, I put up with that. The author bit is interesting, because I know we talked about you saw one therapist who also writes a lot of books. Oh, yes. And oh, my word. you kind of found that problematic because you perhaps knew too much of their mind. Is that fair to say, or...? Well, it's right. I'd read one of their books and I liked it very, very much because it was about, uh, I think it's basically about depression, but above the back of loss. So I liked it. And um, so I and a friend was um, a friend was seeing this uh, therapist and recommended. So I got in contact with them and I did see them, but it was very 
it was a strange sensation. I suppose one of the weird things about it, if you spend time with writers, and I do, I spend quite a few of my friends are writers, unfortunately, one does have concerns that one might end up in a story of some kind. and Or even greater concerns that you don't. Well, this is this has happened quite a lot, Robin, and we'll be talking to you about that later. I <laughs> can't believe I wonder what they've said about me. Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing at all. <laughs> that, that's the thing when you're a psychotherapist and you write. It, uh, I thought, you know, asking permission to put people in would be the big thing. No, they're usually right. delighted. You know, they, they might need disguising, but they're usually delighted. But the ones that I have the most oh. trouble with is like, why didn't you write about me? My <laughs> thing was fascinating. Why? What's what's wrong with my story? Why haven't you written? Yeah, there they go. I'm sure. I'm sure there's a lot of that. And it was. It was very. It was. It was a strange sensation of you. You neither know the therapist because there they are in the room with you, not letting on anything except that you do start to observe that they have milk in their tea. But that might be for show. You can't trust them. And um, and then there's this whole hinterland of work of published work that you're aware of that you may choose to read or not and where are they in that and what is far I mean I think far too much as it is to absolutely no use whatsoever there's a lot of thinking going on that doesn't do anybody any good but yeah I found it I found it kind of disturbing I think yeah they are interested there was uh, I was talking with the comedian the other day he was he had a his therapist was I might get this term right relationship Null or whatever relational the one Rel- where relational where, where the the therapist can say their feelings in the room as well so it's not just that you know that they'll go well, it, well you know how I feel it's um, when you talk about the impact the other has on you uh, that, that is relational psychotherapy I mean a lot of psychotherapists that I mean that's Freudian as well when when he shares his countertransference if it's t- for the benefit of the patient it's just sharing your countertransference. Because he said he, the problem he had was this person was pretty big. Uh, so, um, you know, um, obviously ate quite a lot. And for whatever reasons. And the therapist kept saying about... Uh, Who was big? He, sorry, the therapist. The therapist. The, okay. And had to, would keep going on about his uncontrolled desires and the things he couldn't... <laughs> and eventually, after about six months, he, he felt, well, I'm allowed to put things in the room as well. Yeah. So he said, well... You know, to be, you know, I, I wonder now you're talking about uncontrolled desires and sometimes I look at you and, and, and I think, well, you must have desire. And anyway, it was very cold for the next month of therapy. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, it man. doesn't sound like a very good therapist, really, because I think the, the biggest gift you can give to your child or your client is to take what they put on you. So you're not too much for me. So whatever you say to me... Whatever you feel towards me, it's not too much for me. I can contain it. I can hold it. I think that's a parent's job and I think that's a therapist's job. So if you say to your therapist, mate, you're talking about uncontrolled desires and yet you are so fat, I think the therapist should be able to hold that. I'm not saying the therapist should be thin. I'm not saying that because we're not perfect people. We might be fat. Um, But... I do think you should be able to hold it and work with it. And, you know, what was it like for you to tell me I was fat? I think would be a, a an interesting a- avenue to go down. Or, you're right, I have got uncontrolled desires, but we're working with yours right now, you know. What do you think are the best, in terms of understanding 
of therapists. I presume that you, in the same way, if I watch a, a film with a comedian in it or about comedy, more often, you go, oh, that's not what we do and that's not right. And you must have a mixture of, of between, you know, this, oh, you yeah, know, that's very much how I like people to think, you know, that, that therapists are, you know, uh, oh, Montgomery Clift, whatever it might be. Uh, and then others where you go, there are certain preconceived notions which pop culture mm-hmm. has uh you know placed placed in the lap of many of us i mean there's a lot of you know sorts of therapy i think that you know probably as many as there are therapists but you know you've got your jungian you've got your freudian you've got your counseling you've got your psychodynamic your person centered and i always say the best therapist for you isn't what these brands are it's who you get on with who you think gets you. And that might be your hairdresser or it might be your Freudian analyst. So it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. It's oh, like sorry, no, I meant more sorry. The preconceived notions that occur, oh, what are... in, 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 whether, whether it's from novels... Oh, I love, I love all that. I mean, I, The Sopranos I really <laughs> liked with that, that uh, therapist that used to have a nip of vodka before Tony Soprano came to see her. Um, and then there was another therapist in that who was quite different, who uh, Carmel went to see once. Mm. Um, I just, I, I, I Is love that Peter all... Bogdanovich. Don't ask me. Because Peter Bogdanovich plays one of the therapists, doesn't oh, right. he? Who's friends it might with, have yeah. been. It might have been. I, I don't know. But I, I love how thera- all therapists are depicted. Um, there is one trait that drama absolutely loves about psychotherapists, which I think they exaggerate enormously, which is that they think, uh, oh, look, some, some, some messages coming through. Yes, it is Peter Bogdanovich. Now, uh, now, of course, because people don't know that you're looking at the screen that Trent's just typed into, they may well have thought you had a message from the spirit world there. <laughs> a message is coming through <laughs> from the late Barry Norman. He says, yes, it is I Peter Bogdanovich. Doing, I'm doing a documentary about the spirit world at the moment, so that's quite funny. Um, anyway, where was I? Yeah, um, what they always depict in films is a psychotherapist having sex with their client. We are not supposed to do that. It happens very, 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 very rarely with some of the, the odd naughty, naughty, naughty psychotherapist, but it's not as common as it's depicted. Well, speaking as a client, why would you want to? I mean, good <laughs> lord. Oh, well, because of the positive transference, because... Um, the therapist knows all about minds. I mean, aren't you impressed when your car mechanic knows exactly what's wrong with your car and manages to fix it? I always think, oh, thank you, you're so clever. You know, I put him a bit on a pedestal because he's fixed my car. And I think, you know, if you feel like, oh, I've been understood for the first time and you get a feeling of intimacy, yeah, it's quite often that you might have some erotic transference along with that. You might fancy someone that you wouldn't normally fancy. And some therapists let's say one in a million zillion might take advantage of that, but it's not as common as it's depicted in stage, screen and books. But, of course, it is a dramatic device and I don't blame you for writing it. Who's your favourite, whether in a, in, in a book or on screen, your ridiculous therapist? Do you have one where you just, you know... Because it does seem that one of the things that I wonder about is sometimes there is... Oh, yes, is... I do. Oh, God, I do. great. I've just been watching the SAS thing and uh he's not a therapist he's like is it andy a, someone who he's the is the squadron leader or whatever and uh he's so brutal and so challenging i mean it would probably just 
dissolved most people if they had his sort of interventions, but he's sort of like, you need to swap your wishbone for a backbone. I think, <laughs> no, he's it's it's just so confrontational. I just find it quite entertaining to watch. I'm not saying it would be really brilliant or good. I mean, <laughs> so he's an aggressive fortune cookie, basically. Yeah, basically, yeah. Um, I think that you know the best therapist might be someone that says very little but radiates love, and this doesn't really um, and makes you feel accepted and acceptable and wonderful. And this doesn't really make for a great dramatic device. So um, I can't really think of one. Well, the worst one, Happiness, Todd Salon's film. I saw that film. Oh, the guy was just thinking it's, about the um, he, he, his the, shopping list the whole got, time. You've got Philip Seymour Hoffman just lying and he's like that, and he's got he's always got a damp upper lip as well, and he's going through everything that's going through his mind and all the sadness. And then you just and you can just see the guy's just writing a shopping list. Yes, and, just, and that is what <laughs> that is. But then it turns out he's a really it's it's a very dark and strange uh, film. I can remember um, watching it and, and, and enjoying it, but I can't remember what, much about it, I'm afraid. It's one of those films which has that, you know, the, the, where half the audience laugh, the other half go, oh, no, <laughs> this is a really... Ter-. It's a bit like watching Death of Stalin. You watch yeah. Death of Stalin and you're laughing because it's so brilliantly done and then you yeah. go, this really yeah. happened. This brutal yeah. person, this, this you know, yeah. sexual predator, whatever it might be, oh, this is real as well. It's like following the news these days. Yes, I know. Exactly the same effect. Best avoided. Yeah, exactly. Um, What about, Rebecca, for you, uh, did you find... I mean, at what age did you start to think, having, you know, lost your father when you were six years old, was there a point where you started to look for something in art that you were a little bit conscious that it was reaching out for some kind of help? I don't really know. I think I... I mean, I was always... I I wanted... I did get a nurse's outfit when I was three. At that point, I wanted to be a nurse. Not long after that, I wanted to be an actor. Horrendous, disaster. And because mum wanted to go to the theatre, she'd take us to the theatre. So I went to the theatre, our local theatre, quite a bit, where it was all the couples and me and my mum. Um, And so I then was just, like, completely taken by, I think, performance. Because I think, unfortunately, much to my sadness, I'm a performer. And it drives me nuts. It's, I don't find it very useful in my life. If I could get rid of one thing, it would be that. Because I think everything else might suddenly f- slot into place if I didn't want to perform. Or if I didn't find myself performing when I'm not on stage. And um, I and I definitely... But I think what I what I found out... Well, last I was, <laughs> I was with two very good friends last night. And I said, Manchester by the Sea, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? And I said, I found it really uplifting... And then we had a whole long conversation about how a film that with its centre terrible bereavement and people finding it extremely difficult to overcome what's happened to them could possibly be uplifting. And they were taking me to task over using the word uplifting. And I stuck to it. I said, because I felt up, I felt uplifted. Most people I recognise wouldn't. And I think I quite early on started to recognise that I found I was attracted to stories that were bleak and dark and horrendous. Like, I can't, I still can't stand rom-coms. You can show me a good rom-com that's well-structured with plenty of grimness in it. That, at its happy ending, has the absolute note of... Um, this isn't going to work out yeah, well. Yeah, this is, well, or this is <laughs> going to be tremendously difficult. There's one I can't remember yeah. the name of now being me, which uh, somebody showed me recently, which is fabulous, where somebody's got a sister who's extremely mentally unwell. And the sister will be part of their ongoing life. Her, and her yeah. health issues, are, she sometimes finds it sometimes has massive impact on everyone yeah. around her. And um, and so they decide they're going to get together, the couple, but 
the lovely last romantic conversation they have is she says to him, if you, go, if you want to marry me, this means a lifetime with my sister. And to me... That's incredibly. That wasn't wonderful. something like Rachel getting married, was it? Or... No, it's no. called. Oh, it's called. I should. I've been saying to people, you must watch. And now I can't remember because the proper nouns leave me like so many butterflies out of the butter mm. dish. No, that's wrong. And um, so I. Oh, very close there to uh, Matt Goss from Bross. There. Thank you. Well, I have not watched it. And I have not watched the documentary yet. So I'm just a natural. Okay. I'm just. Oh well, you know, I'm, I'm, the jury is out. It may not be an eye player by the time I get around to it. But I. So I found. I found what I. Was weird. What was always weird for me was the things like Heart of Darkness. I remember reading Heart of Darkness for school, and it just made so much sense to me. Whereas I'm not sure that that was the case for some of the people around me, because I was so bleak and so nihilistic. But God, by the time I was 15, my word! And so I think I found other. Th- I I found myself to enjoy other things entirely. I'm the Dirty Dancing generation. I remember going round to Trudy's house to watch Dirty Dancing, sitting through this, for me, completely alienating, weird stuff. And I couldn't... It was quite, The dancing's quite nice. I've, Patrick Swayze I wonder whether nice. it reminds you of the forced jollity that people, you know, dumped on you when you wanted to be miserable and you wanted your misery seen and felt by other people and taken on board and contained by other people. And a film like Manchester by the Sea... Um, I love that film too. Um, it's so good at conveying hopelessness, desperation, and and giving up. Totally. And the sort of the and what's what's incredible about that? I want to read the screenplay actually because what's fascinating is that the underneath of all that is kind of exactly as sort of what you're talking about. That's okay. So what's interesting about that? I don't want to be, have had a spoiler for anybody, but you've got the central character who's who's not a happy man. No, <laughs> but he is still living. Yeah, and it's a really interesting thing because there's very, very little of that in 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 culture. I find the sort of un, if you're unhappy and negative and find life difficult, you are either some grand misery and a bane of people's lives. You're in as good as it gets, yeah. um, or you've got to cheer up. There isn't where I think a lot of people, and I know they do because I've done a show about loss, so I know where people exist. Some people exist is in a place where they carry on living. But there isn't, they don't experience it as they experienced it before, whatever it was, whatever door they passed through to arrive where mm. they are now. And it's an acceptance of that. And I think there is a lot in, there's a lot of trying to find acceptance for those feelings. So certainly, as a, as a small child, as you say, you need to be very cheerful all the time. You need to be having fun. You're always oh. having a great time, morning it's, till night. And anything you're upset it, about is trivial, when even if it's your own father's death. Re- Rebecca's putting on a sort of fake, um, <laughs> aggressive smile sort of uh, at me now. And I, I actually feel it as oppressing. You know, when someone forces me to cheer up, I find it oppressing. Yeah. I mean, that's probably why I'm a therapist, because I, I quite enjoy hearing hearing about other people's misery yeah. and containing it and being okay with it. Yeah. And that makes um, yeah that makes a lot of sense to me, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, Manchester by the Sea, yeah, it was a little bit like a day in the office, but on the other hand, it did it was so accurate about what it really feels like to be a human and go through some awful stuff. And everybody does go through awful stuff stuff hopefully not as awful as that chap went through. Mm. But we we never 
spend enough time with it, I don't think. No, or that, enough yeah, time with yeah. death, yeah. actually. Well, in the, it, the constant presence of death, I just find it's... I find it, I always say to people, my death is sitting next to me. In fact, there is literally a chair next to me in here. And I often say my death is sitting next to me and it's the only comfort there is, is to have this wonderful knowledge of my death being right with me all the time. When I say that to people, I can't believe I've just said that on a podcast. Um, yeah. People will back away from me in the supermarket. I, it's a terrifying idea for most people and fascinating me. It's nearly as... But that's what I felt when I was six. Yeah, it definitely is what I felt when I was twelve. By the time I realised I yeah. was in some sort of sort of psychological trouble, I still feel the same. I'm far freer with it now. Yeah. But still, most people are like. Eh. It's funny that because I wrote a sentence in How to Stay Sane, which I thought was completely ordinary, and I said, <laughs> "If you walk down the street, everyone you can see now in a hundred years' time, they're all going to be dead, and yet the street, blah blah blah." Mm. And people went, "That was a bit bleak, wasn't it?" Oh, I said. Man. I gave them a hundred years. I mean, realistically, it was probably going to be 35. But <laughs> That's what I, I do find that weird, that, that idea of that's a bit bleak. It's an argument that I have sometimes um, with my wife where I'll sometimes say, oh, look, we don't need to be worried about this. We, you know, we may well, we're two thirds of the way through and she'll find that bleak, whereas I find it's an incentive. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think you know the, the idea of con- constantly avoiding. When, when I was doing an event in in Nottingham, there was a guy, and I wish I could remember his name now. Who who he's an expert on death is is what he studies. He you know looking at the taboo of death, yeah. looking at the traditions, and he, afterwards he was chatting to me. And he said, "You're right that he said that we're still the the UK." We're not good. We don't. We, we, we distance ourselves from it. We believe there's going to be a simple kind of end. I mean, that's what I suppose a lot of films that you're talking about in terms of the, the not necessarily the bad films, but films in which there is just a conclusion. And that's there's a great documentary called Cinemania about film obsessives in New York who go and see every screening. And there's one particular guy who's very, very smart as well, but he's obviously had some trouble. And he said, the thing about films is, he said, that you've got, is, is it gets to the end and they punch the air or they hug and that's it. Yeah! But then one of them goes, oh, I've got to go off now, and they get on the subway, and then they start to experience doubt. And then, you know, and that bit, which is the yeah. idea of a conclusion, or now I've cheered up. Oh, look, Philip is smiling. Yeah. Freeze frame! Every, every, everything's fine. Well, then uh, you need another film. I mean, that's what's... And then you need another book. You need another... Like anything, like anything else, everything will come Everything will come to an end. Thank you. Thank you know, but, but, but at different times, we're not going to all come to the and end at the same time. And it's and what's fascinating is about that. That's and that's what's but again, it's it's fascinating. Uh, one my relationship, people's relationships with art, artistic pursuits, everything, thing you might enjoy, whatever it is that you enjoy um, viewing or reading or you know experiencing, is you know you walk out of the gallery, you have some feelings about that. It will pass. And um, and while you'll see a lot, there's a lot of sort of, I see these days quite a lot of people talking about, you know, mental health and they're talking about uh, depressive states, for example. It'll pass. This is just weather. It'll pass. Um, my experience of that is not so much. However, coming out exhilarated from a really interesting uh, exhibition, that's going to pass. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's a, and, I, and while I recognise I should be part of the, of the current trend, which is to say... Um, you know, you, you, if you just go out for a walk or have, have a bit of broccoli, you're going to feel good. I'm like, well, really? No. Maybe something might be interesting and inspiring that will be of interest to you. But that will pass as well. What is your baseline? How do you live in it? How do you live in that cold bath? I uh, I have a phrase which I use, which is your default mood. Yeah. yeah because yeah, yeah. 
what we tend to do is have our default mood. And yeah, we can distract ourselves from it. We can we can go out for a walk and it, we can change it. But the actual baseline, that's much, much harder to shift and move. And if you, if you work very hard, you might move it a centimetre, um, which might be the difference between bearable and unbearable. But it's still like that default mood that, that we yeah. have. I've got friends who are very, I mean, brilliant, <coughs> cheerful types. It's remarkable how brilliant and cheerful they are. They're, they're nauseatingly so. And they, you can say, I can say something bleak to them and they'll go, God, I've never thought of that. And I think, I've been thinking about that for 40 years. I rarely <laughs> think about anything else when I wake up in the morning. It's what I think about. And I, and I suppose I, I'm going, I hopefully one day will stop resisting the idea that I can't be them. But I do feel strongly that the current culture tells us, self-help tells us, lots yeah. of things tell us, no, no, what you need to be is you need to have that attitude. You need to be the fellow who gets up and goes for a run in the morning and has some some steamed broccoli for breakfast and then go and high, high five. He doesn't. Sa- in his life doesn't sound that great. Actually. No. no, he sounds gassy, <laughs> really gassy. Well, I don't, and I don't Imagine believe him. Imagine jogging behind him. him. Oh, God, that oh. bloke is full of broccoli. Oh, <laughs> smell. You've got um, a bunch of books. Oh, We've I run out of time, but let's let's just, just got, give us the titles. I've got so uh, recently. Recently, I'm sorry. I'm, 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 this actually, well, it seems. Oh, this. she's a fascinating. This woman, yes. is a wonderful book. Uh, Smile or Die. Um, by Barbara Enreich. I'm so sorry, yeah. Enreich. Enreich, I think it would be. I'm so bad at uh, reading and things like that. Um, and it's the... Uh, in, I'm making a show. I'm making a new uh, solo show at the moment, and it's basically about the negative impact of the cult of positive thinking. Yay! And it's this magnificent book that started me thinking about that, which is about how you're supposed to be... You're supposed to be cheerful. And if you're not cheerful, you're an aberration. Oh, this is so funny after the conversation we've had these are literally coming out of the bag after the conversation Joseph Heller something happened not a one a popular book of Joseph Heller's my second Joseph Heller uh, read after Catch 22 I bought it in 1993 it is about a man who remembers something happening behind a door he can't remember what happened but if only he could remember what happened behind that door he'd be able to sort himself out that, cool. That, oh, that reminds me of something in the woodshed. Exactly. No, it's exactly the same thing. <laughs> Fantasy in the brain. I'm a, oh, I, yeah, great I, one. I do read novels, but I'm far more likely to be reading popular science books, uh, science for uh, light-minded folks. Uh, Fantasy in the brain, brilliant. Um, V.S. Uh, Ramachandran, oh, the most yeah. magnificent book, starting with phantom limb pain and neurology and the, what is going on in the brain that we don't know yet. That is fantastic, that book. I can recommend that one. Yeah, I agree. We've got a novel out of the bag. This really feels like Countdown. It's not a novel, thanks. Um, this is uh, Andrew Davies' only novel. Uh, Andrew Davies famously says he can't be bothered to write novels. As I understand, he says this. It's much easier to write screenplays. Um, getting her, it's the it's a man at the end of a relationship going back, recounting what happened during that relationship. I rarely reread books, but if I need to, if something awful has happened to me, it's a magnificent companion through the really hard times. I think it's out of print, which is unjust. Unjust. And a book I haven't read yet. Ah, uh, we've had Tim Harford on talking La, about that. I've got to listen yes. to that one. I haven't listened to that one yet. I haven't read Messy, How to Be Creative and Resilient in a Tidy Minded way. I'm incredibly chaotic and untidy, and I get more so. And so I think my mother gave that to me as sort of to say, that's OK. Oh, collusion, sorry, politics. Luke Harding's amazing collusion uh, about uh, the connections between Trump and Russia and uh, just how extraordinary those connections are and frightening. 
And the final two are... Very quickly. Any Other Mouth, given to me recently by a man who dumped me, uh, which was a very disturbing thing. It's magnificent. It's got a great chapter on how to be an alcoholic writer, which is one of the funniest things I've ever read. Um, and is Lee's that Mac- fiction or non-fiction? It's non-fiction. Right. Annie's Macintosh. It's absolutely magnificent. I adore that book. And The State of Africa. Some people might say it's the best book about post-colonial Africa. Um, by Martin Meredith. If you love um, popular history, which I certainly do, it's inc- it's an incredible... I don't know how he does it in whatever this is, knocking on 700 pages. It's a remarkable... It's a good, really good primer if you're interested in um, post-colonial African history and if you want to be able to say anything to anybody, uh, any if you meet them at all, about anything that has gone on. I just think it's a wonderful book. There we go. That's well, for someone who has trouble reading, you've done very well. <laughs> um, and, Philippa, we won't go through all your books because uh, you're going to be back on to talk about, uh, in, in the fuller way, about your, your new book, I hope. Uh, and also you can listen to the time that we uh, went through some of Philippa's favourite books about a year and a half ago, I think it was, a couple of years back. We'll talk about your book, which is out at the beginning of March, isn't it? Yes, yeah, something like that. Yep, Brilliant. 7th of March. Uh, Rebecca, we'll talk about your book if you ever get round to writing it. Listen, Hurry le- up. I am leaving the country imminently to do it, so leave me alone. I'm going to do it. Okay. Can, Rebecca, can you give me the title of the first book that you spoke aloud? So, yeah, the play is called Sometimes I Laugh Like My Sister. Oh. Um and, yeah, it's got a picture of me on the front, unfortunately, but still, I recommend it. And Thank it's you published very much. by Oberon Books. It's Oberon Books, the gorgeous, they wonderful, some... bijou and magnificent Oberon Books. Oberon you have Books. a lovely, as well, there's a collection of uh, Dennis Potter's journalism that they put together. Oh, really? Great, big, really interesting. They do phenomenal uh, stuff. Yeah, and a very good, I think one of the last ones I read was, they, they did one about, oh, what's her name? Uh, Stratford East... Uh, uh, no. Oh, uh, um, um, sorry. You're so you're talking about the incredible woman who ran uh, Stratford East and did amazing yeah, theatre. And for some reason, and Carol got... Churchill's in my head, and I don't well, want see, it. And I can. Joan I've Littlewood. Got Peggy Ramsey. There yeah. you go. I had Peggy jo- Ramsey jo- in my head. Jo- there jo- you go. Joan jo- jo- Littlewood. They did a, a, a. There's a wonderful biography of hers, uh, and also an, an interesting one about uh, the preparation for a production of Waiting for Godot that was done in. Oh, Bath, really? They do good. amazing books. They're lo- and they're wonderful people. They're such. They're so lovely. I love What's that. your favourite? Of, of just for just so yeah. Um, uh, over, over Christmas, did you read any books? What's your favourite, most recent reading? Free food for millionaires. Bye. She looks at the screen. <laughs> and, and while we're waiting for the author of Free Food for Millionaires, um, uh, if you want to look at uh, Book Shambles, it's on iTunes, not on iPlayer. Uh, and uh, Free Food for Millionaires is by Min Jin Lee, and I would recommend anything she writes. It's fantastic. What's the basic gist of that one? It's about what it's like to go from one culture to another. So she and her family are from South Korea and they're in New York. And it's so interesting to look at Western uh, society from an outsider's point of view. We learn so much about ourselves. And it's also a fantastic story and she is a brilliant writer. And it's just a very enjoyable way to spend the time reading her books. Min Jin Lee. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Uh, Josie will be back with us uh, soon, hopefully. Hopefully we're going to record some with her in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and uh, please go and support us on Patreon because uh, we've almost run out of money now because we're using it also to fund uh, a lot of um, science blogs because The Guardian decided to stop having science blogs just when we've never needed more evidence-based thinking publicised than before. So uh, go and check out on CosmicShambles.com uh, a lot of the science blogs that we've got as well and all of those bits and pieces and do try and support us on Patreon. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.
thank you for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles if you'd like to become one of them. Don't forget to check out all our blogs on our Cosmic Shambles blog network. Lots of new stuff up there from Brenna Hassett and John Butterworth and Ginny Smith and Jenny Roan. Go check all that out. Robin and Brian's Loungecast is back. Brain Yapping the podcast. New episode of that has just gone out. Lots of events coming up. It is a busy 2019 at the Cosmic Shambles Network. Thanks for all your support. We will be back next week with a brand new episode of Book Shambles. Have a great week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.